It's hard to believe that we're at the first of November. For me, it still feels like the year just began. We're in the final two months. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here today with Courtney Astolfi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. Can you guys believe we're in November? Doesn't it feel like 2022 evaporated before our very eyes? <sighs> I'm having COVID fog. Like, I can't remember if things happened last year or this year or in 2020. And because it does seem like a blur. Um, But now we're getting some really nice weather for the first week of November. Yeah, I just, I can't believe it's November. (laughs) It's like the year is over. We're going to be talking 2023. Where did it all go? Well, we got some news to talk about today. Let's get to it. How is Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer using the old Michigan and Ohio rivalry to attract votes for a constitutional amendment in her state to enshrine the right to an abortion? Lisa, this is an interesting tack by the governor up north. It is. And that uh, that ballot initiative is called Proposal 3 that Michigan voters will be voting on next week. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, spoke before the Detroit Economic Club back on the 21st of October. And she said, this is an exciting economic opportunity and a chance to, quote, go into Indiana and Ohio and start stealing headquarters and cultivating talent, unquote. And she says she, you know, she wants to approach Coach Purdue and OSU female engineer grads and get them to come to Michigan. And Nan Whaley kind of has the inverse argument. She says that Ohio abortion laws, should they become permanent or, or worse than they are now, is driving talent out of Ohio. And in a statement responding to Whitmer's statement, she said that Whitmer is correct. If the fetal heartbeat law remains in Ohio, that we could be losing talent in headquarters. But when we talk to DeWine spokesman Dan Tierney, he says we see zero evidence of that. He says that's wishful thinking. He points to Intel, of course, and then expansions at Honda, GM, and Ford. And Steve Stivers with the Ohio Chamber of Commerce calls it a red herring. He says Ohio's better than Michigan for business anyway. I sent out a note about this on subtext yesterday saying we were working on the story and the conservative people who get those texts immediately came back at me. Not, not just a few, a bunch saying that's preposterous. No one would ever leave a state over something like this. It's not enough. But in the same text chain, I heard from a bunch of people who said that they and their spouse are looking to leave Ohio because they feel like it's becoming way too far away from where they their beliefs are. So I heard from both sides vehemently disagreeing with each other. But there were people saying, I want to get out of Ohio if it keeps going down this path. We're not represented by people who actually represent Ohio views. I think Whitmer's on to something. There is a rivalry. So if you're in Michigan, you pretty much hate Ohio. And, <laughs> and so you're, you know, if you say, oh, we can stick it to Ohio. I, I don't think it's, it's a false tack. I do think because companies need employees, if, if you're trying to get a younger employee and you have abortion enshrined as a right, which is in keeping with a lot of the younger sets beliefs, you know, you might want to take up residents in Michigan to attract them. 
But like like DeWine and others say, they're not seeing evidence of it because they've had such a big investment in Ohio, including by Intel. But, you know, and uh, unfortunately, abortion, as far as a, a ballot thing, something that's driving people to the polls next week has actually dropped. I mean, it was number one in the in the wake of the Dobbs decision, but it's really dropped way behind the economy, public safety, guns. I mean, so it's really kind of not in the forefront of some people's minds. I know as a woman, I'll be voting, you know, my my gender, as it were. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, the the ads have worked so hard to make it not about abortion, but I you just don't know until election day. At this point, you really can't believe anything that you see. We'll have a full reckoning one week from today. Finally, this has been one a long election season. It's today in Ohio. What are environmentalists doing to undo a Trump-era decision by the EPA to end the ability of people to go after polluters as nuisances? Laura, this is a little bit complicated, but there's a key element here about fighting the polluters. Right, exactly. It used to be that citizens could invoke this air nuisance rule to bring cases against polluters like coal and steel plants, anyone they say endangers the public health. And this was bundled with Ohio's U.S. EPA-approved implementation plan on the Clean Air Act. So that's been in place since 1974. But in 2020, the U.S. EPA, just after, or sorry, still under President Donald Trump at the time, finalized what they call a rollback error correction provision of the Clean Air Act. So it didn't even have to go through the regular process. It says that rule was never supposed to be as part of the Clean Air Act, even though it had been used for decades. So environmentalists are now challenging the decision and included in the plaintiff is a woman named Donna Ballinger. She used this rule against the AK steel facility in Middletown. She said there's particulate deposits all from the plant all over her cars, her deck, her grandchildren's toys outside. And it's hard to breathe because of that slag. But doesn't the federal government get to set the rules on this kind of thing? I mean, isn't it up? The EPA is what created the right. So can't the EPA take it away? But I feel like when there's a rule change, usually it goes through a process where people are able to voice their opinion. And this did not have that public opinion process. They were just like, oops, sorry, we made a mistake, you know, 46 years ago and we're going to we're going to correct it now. And I mean, there's a lot of backing for this removal of the nuisance rule. The Ohio Chamber of Commerce, the Ohio Chemistry Technology Council, Manufacturers Association, Petroleum Institute and Ohio Oil and Gas Association. And they think that it should apply only to pollutants specifically targeted by the Clean Air Act. But this they, they say the Ohio EPA can still bring a case, but they're just taking away the public's ability to challenge this. Yeah, I know. But but it, this is done by the, the legislative and executive branch of the government. If you want to bring it back, you have a different president now. Why not go in and get the EPA to reinstitute the rule? It, it doesn't seem like the courts should be legislating, which is what this lawsuit seems to seek. Right. And the EPA is softening a little. They say that it should be reexamined. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's an odd one to be in the courts. So it's today in Ohio. One of the odder decisions in Frank Jackson's waning days as mayor was to give $2 million to Project Neon, a Huff neighborhood medical provider that had closed a year and a half ago because of a fire. Courtney, did Project Neon ever get that $2 million in stimulus dollars that the outgoing administration approved? 
No, here we are almost a year later after council approved it. This this uh, money was largely backed by former councilman Bashir Jones, in whose former ward Neon is located. But Bib came into office this year and the money has not moved. You know, a Bib spokesperson told our reporter Lucas that the city's working through a contracting process and details of the project, but um they're also considering whether it's the most efficient and effective way to benefit the community. So we'll have to see if this money ever gets into Neon's hands. Now, Neon is a key kind of health provider for Huff, um, you know, just east of downtown. And it's been closed for a year and a half, about 200000 from the city's $2 million um, you know, allocation of ARPA dollars was going to be used to help rebuild the facility, assuming there were lots of other funds that would would help rebuild the facility after the fire. But but no. So Lucas uh, went by in July. There was there was no signs of work, nothing really going on out at the Huff Health Center. And then he drove by again last week. And we do seem to be seeing some kind of progress. The doors and windows were boarded up. There were what appeared to be construction lights on and there was a sign hanging out front that read, you know, property restoration, you know, a company sign. So things do seem to be moving, but it's unclear how they can kind of bounce back and if the city money is, is needed to do that. Well, we raised a lot of questions about this at the time. This was a very questionable deal. We were all surprised that the city went ahead and committed the money. Uh, Bashir Jones had decided to run for mayor, so he was leaving council, and one of his last bids was to do this. And of course, now, since then, the federal justice department has subpoenaed all sorts of records involving Bashir Jones, not involving Project Neon, but other projects. So I'm not surprised that the new administration came in and went, whoa, 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 let's let's vet this, because there were significant questions about the viability of Project Neon. Yeah. And when this was going through council hearings at the end of last year, council ended up approving it on Bashir's last meeting day, if I recall correctly. It was a really odd conversation. So they had all these questions about the compensation that the CEO of of the health center was making. And there was just a lot of, I think, red flags maybe that were being discussed before council. And then and then when it went to a final vote on the floor, Bashir got up and was saying, if I recall correctly, let's let's double the allocation, which is something that never happens on the floor at council. It's just, just a bunch of weird things around this. And then, yeah, we saw the subpoena probing Bashir's uh, business connections, not Neon, a few months later. And it does raise more questions than it answers, well, I'd say. It, it also raised questions on the long tradition of council basically approving anything a council person wants in their ward. They, they treat these wards like fiefdoms. And so if a council person wants to do something, they don't act as a body to truly vet it. They pretty much rubber stamp it. And it's bizarre. I mean, it, it, it allows a council person to block certain development. We saw that with uh, TJ Dow. Remember the trouble he was giving for UH, which was trying to move forward on a project. And it made no sense. It was big economic development. It was very questionable what he was doing. It's another case like that. You know, Bashir Jones gets up, says, I want $2 million. This is for my ward. This is important to me. And everybody approves it because they're afraid if they don't, when they have something, they might not get it approved. It's strange. And and the sad part of all of this is whatever the the Bashir and the neon issues are, 
you know, regular folks in Huff are the ones paying the price for, for not having access to this kind of health center. Lucas talked to Eric Houston, who who talked about having to make a 70-minute drive-in every so often so he can take one of his aunts to go get to go get care. Otherwise, she'd be, it sounds like, walking down the street to the health center. So needs are, are not being met in this community is this project languages for whatever, language, languages for whatever reason. Okay. Check out Lucas's story. It's on cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. Speaking of the former mayor, he spent a good bit of time in the past week at the trial of a man accused of helping plan the murder of the mayor, former mayor's grandson. It was a circumstantial case, so conviction was anything but guaranteed. Courtney, what did the jury decide? Yeah, we found that the jury came back on Monday after six hours of deliberating, and and they found Robert Shepard guilty of aggravated murder in the September 2021 death of Frank Q. Jackson. Like you said, the mayor was in the courtroom as this has been going on. Robert Shepard, let, let's talk a little bit about his case. He's a 30-year-old, and he's not accused of actually pulling the trigger here. Um, what he he did do, though, the jury found, is that he he was the setup man for the killer. So basically, you know, prosecutors built the case against Shepard, like you said, mainly through uh, video footage. They tapped into cameras from CMHA, cameras from the city, and showed how these events unfolded that night. Basically, prosecutors said Shepard conspired with the killer and, and went on to borrow Jackson's dirt bike that day. There was one attempt to shoot him earlier in the evening. And then later in the evening, you know, Jackson called Shepard to get his dirt bike back. Shepard was nearby, but told Jackson he'd leave the bike elsewhere uh, a bit further away at the Garden Valley housing complex. And and so Shepard dropped the bike off, pointed its location out to someone in a vehicle, and then took off. And then shortly thereafter, Frank Q. Jackson walks up, and someone got out of the vehicle and and opened fire on him. Yeah, they shot him seven times. They still have not identified the shooter, uh, which which is interesting because if they've got this guy now convicted of helping Planet, he could give up the shooter. He's going to be serving a long prison sentence for being complicit in a murder. It's so sad, though, to think about Jackson. Here he was mayor for 16 years, spending his post post-mayor years, sitting in a courtroom, watching the trial of somebody who killed his grandson. Jackson was always very devoted to his family. And it's just a kind of a crushing vignette to have him sitting in the courtroom having to live through this. Can I add one more detail that really struck me was that they tried to shoot him earlier in the day, according to the prosecutors, and, and he was wearing red pants. Instead, they shot another person, I believe a 12-year-old yeah, boy, 12 year old. who right. was wearing red pants. And you're like, oh, my God. I, yeah. I don't think that kid died. I hope not. But that's No, awful. he didn't. He's alive. But that, yeah, they, it was mistaken identity because right. he was dressed similarly. And he was shot a bunch of times, too, and lived. It's kind of remarkable that he lived. But yeah, I know this was this was terrible stuff. Look, uh, Frank, we detailed Frank Q. Jackson had been in trouble, quite a bit of trouble. Uh, and Jackson, when he would be talked, when the mayor was talked to about this at the time, he'd say, look, I'm, I, it's my family's in the street. I am of Cleveland and the street has this effect. But man, what a tragic, tragic story. It's today in Ohio. Golf courses have been targets 
for parks in recent years, with one in Joggy County and the old Acacia Golf Club in your Lynnhurst, Lisa, slowly evolving into its natural state. What's the next golf course on the list to become parkland? Yeah, the newest one is the Hawthorne Valley Country Club in the Solon area. And uh, earlier this week, uh, they approved, the Metro Parks Board approved $3.8 million to buy 149 acres of that former country club. They will seek a state conservation grant to hopefully pay up to half of the cost, and they'll close on this property late next year, so it'll be a while. And then they will return the land to its natural state like they did with Acacia, and which is just down the road from me. And that took about two or three years. They actually had to pull out the sprinkler systems and, and do some other things and, and, uh, and all of that. So uh, this will have links to the South Chagrin Reservation. It will have a fishing pond and walking trails, of course, wildlife habitat. And this area will incorporate a, a pretty big stretch of Hawthorne Creek. So the Country Club opened in 1926. It was really old. It was closed in 2018. And then in 2020, Solon voters approved a zoning change that would allow 105 homes built on 33 acres of the old club that would be for residents 50 years and over in age. And then the 149 was set aside for perpetual green space. And that's when the uh, owners of the country club approached Metro Parks and said, hey, do you want to buy this land and make it into a park? So it will wrap around this housing development. It'll be adjacent to the South Chagrin Reservation on the north and south sides. Solon's going to chip in a half a million dollars. Metro Parks is going to uh, contribute $118,000. And then they're getting money from the Clean Ohio Conservation Fund or the Ohio Public Works Commission. That's just over $2 million. So that's a total of $2.72 million. So they still have some funding to make up. They, you know, Metro Parks is going to look at other funding for that, but they're pretty confident they're going to get it. We've spent a lot of time in both the Joga County Park and Acacia walking the dog. Joga County is probably, I don't know, a decade ahead of Acacia. And Acacia is now, it's probably been going on 10 years since that got converted. And what's really interesting is to watch the transformation. Mm -hmm. When you first go in, it's a golf course. Mm -hmm. I mean, everywhere you look, it's like, yeah, this was a golf course. But but they do such a good job of planning things and letting the grass grow tall that the one in Jaga County is now feels much, much more like a park. And even Acacia, I was in there a few weeks ago. It, it's getting to the point where it's it's feeling more like you're in a grassland in a woods mm -hmm. than it was a golf course. If, when you first walk down the paths there, you could see everything like you can in a golf yeah, course. Yeah, you could see the greens so... and, you know, how it was laid out. Yeah. I think when they tore down the clubhouse, that was a big deal, you know, that, that really made it look at right when you're walking in, oh, here's a golf, you know, clubhouse. But yeah, yeah. that acacia is very popular with the dogs. Yeah, well, and the deer. There's always deer there. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see. And expanding the South Chagrin Reservation, that's great because that's a, one of the really beautiful metro parks. It's today in Ohio. How much in tax credits will Honda receive for building a new electric vehicle battery plant and retooling other plants in Ohio? Laura. Well, $71.3 million over 30 years. Um, and this will, you know, obviously let them build this new electrical vehicle battery plant as well as retool the existing Ohio plants to produce electric vehicles. So it's a $3.5 billion project. 
for the plant in Ohio, um, Fayette County. It's in Southern Ohio and $700 million more on the other plants. It's supposed to create 2,500 new full-time jobs by the end of 2033 and then retain all of the rest of those jobs in the existing plants. The amount of money that the state has provided for economic development just in the past 12 months is astounding. The dollar amounts are almost unimaginable. And of course, they would say, yeah, but the return is the investment amounts are almost Mm -hmm. unimaginable. But man, that's a lot of money that you're providing to corporations to come here. Well, I think, I mean, we've talked about this before, right? It feels it's an arms race. If they don't offer it, they don't get it because they'll go somewhere else. And so they have to do that to compete. I mean, that's the argument. But these are performance-based. So Honda is going to have to create $117.6 million in new payroll and operate the battery plant for at least 33 years to receive that full credit. So it's not like they're just handing over hundreds of millions of dollars to Honda and saying, hey, spend it as you wish. Uh, Actually, this isn't the only help they're going to be getting. Jobs Ohio is also going to provide help. We don't know how much is going to be coming from them. Okay. It's today in Ohio. The state is providing a lot of money to tear down hundreds of houses in 30 counties, but Cleveland is getting an outsized portion. Lisa, we often talk about how the, 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 urban areas don't get a lot of attention from the state, that they basically soak us for taxes and then put it into rural areas. This is the opposite of that. The governor's office earlier announced funds to raise 825 blighted and vacant buildings across Ohio in 30 different counties. And this money comes from the Ohio Building Demolition and Site Revitalization Program. So in Cuyahoga County, that will raise 428 properties. They're going to get $9.7 million in grants to do that. Most of these are in Cleveland, but also in East Cleveland, Brooklyn, Parma Heights, Brecksville, Euclid, Seven Hills, Middleburg Heights, and Cuyahoga Heights. Cuyahoga Heights. You can see the complete list of these properties in Cuyahoga and Lake County on cleveland.com. I scanned the list and so many of these properties, I would say the lion's share of those in Cleveland are all on the east side. DeWine mentioned funding for clearing brownfields. I don't know if you guys remember if you were sitting in on the endorsement uh, meeting, he did talk about funding for clearing brownfields so you know they can be redeveloped for economic development. So that was kind of interesting. So he's he's definitely got his eye on what's you know, you know, what's important. So yeah, I think this is, this is great. Now 428 properties is a lot. One of the unspoken benefits of this is most of these houses certainly have lead paint in them. And so if you tried to restore them, you would have the lead paint issue unless you removed it, getting rid of them and leaving the land for development ensures that whatever goes there won't have that lead pain issue, which we talk about quite a bit, but it's just staggering how many homes have been torn down in Cuyahoga County and the east side of Cleveland over the last 10 to 15 years. But if you drive through East Cleveland or the east side of Cleveland, boy, you see a lot of blight and, and that's just driving down Superior. So yeah, yeah it's that's definitely true. needed. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Looking past November 8th, finally a week away, we might see a ballot initiative in 2023 to raise Ohio's minimum wage to $15 an hour in five years. Courtney, what's that about? Yeah, this effort cleared an early hurdle on Friday when uh, Attorney General Davio signed off on a petition seeking to change the Constitution 
and set the minimum wage at $15 an hour beginning in 2028. So this would change the way we, we currently determine minimum wage here. So it's our current method is based off an amendment to the Constitution approved in 2006 that ties the minimum wage to like increases in the com- consumer price index. So like this year, it's 930. Next year, it'll be 1010 an hour. But this, this, this petition initiative seeks to kind of start over and get some incremental increases in place from which future wages would then kind of increase off of. So it's just looking to boost the bottom line of minimum wages here. But like I said, this is still, um, you know, in the early stages of planning. This um, would potentially go on the ballot in 2024, I believe. And um, it's being backed by a, a group of advocacy groups known as Raise the Wage Ohio. Let's talk a little bit about the bar that it cleared on Friday. Yoast basically has to sign off and ensure that the language that would go on the ballot is a fair and truthful representation of what the change would attempt to accomplish. He previously rejected one of their proposals, but this time around he found that their language checked out. By 2028, will, if we keep up with the inflation we have, will $15 an hour be reasonable? That was kind of my first thought. It, I mean, it's still better than where it would be otherwise without this change, it seems. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't see how that's I don't that know livable. Why, I mean, the legislature ought to be dealing with this, but it seems like planning for five years from now, that's who knows what the financial conditions mm. will be like. We're seeing stuff we haven't seen in 40 years this year. I mean, mortgage rates are topped 7%, which is really going back a long way. It's today in Ohio. There has been an interesting twist in who is now managing the court-enforced Cleveland Police Consent Decree. Laura, who is it, and what's the twist? This is Aisha Bell Hardaway. She's a Case Western Reserve University professor, and she's been on the group for a while, but there was a big public tiff last year over it um, when she sparred with Hassan Aiden, who's resigning as the leader of the consent decree monitoring team. So she actually spoke up out in the wake of George Floyd's death, spoke, um, I believe, on a podcast and then had a uh, tweet that people thought was over the top and showed that she was that they thought she wasn't objective on the consent decree. So instead of, they asked her to take a lesser role. Instead, she resigned and that caused this community backlash. A bunch of organizations, including the Cleveland Community Police Commission, called for her to be reinstated. So now she's going to be leading the whole group. And they've had um, a bunch of conversations that I think have mended this relationship. And she accepted his apology a long time ago, she said. It was wrong what happened to her. She didn't Absolutely. say anything that was outrageous or anything that was untrue. And and the way she was pounced upon for talking about what we all understand to be an issue what was the outrage. I So the irony that a year later, she's actually in the driver's seat. It's kind of a delicious turn. I hope she gets it permanently because she clearly has a conscience and a drive to make things better. And that's what she said, you know, that she said, from her perspective, the project takes precedent over personal disagreements. My commitment to the city of Cleveland and the implementation of the constitutional policing has never waned, regardless of past grievances. And obviously, this job, the consent decree is in its seventh year. Its goal is to make sure that 
working with the Justice Department that put the decree in place that they're con- ensuring constitutional policing within the city. And you're right. What she said, and sorry, it was on a radio show, not a podcast. She said that policing is pathologically violent and particularly brutal in its interaction with black people. I mean, that seems like a factual statement at this point. I mean, not in every case, but when you look at the past, it's not out of line. No, I, I mean, we talked about it at the time and I thought she did the right thing. It's like, look, I'm not putting up with this. And then the backlash to the people that had pushed her was so strong that she was welcomed back. And now in the interim role, we'll see if it becomes permanent. It's today in Ohio. Got a couple extra minutes. We live in fairly diverse places uh, across the across the town. How many uh, trick-or-treaters did you see last night in Rocky River, Laura? I got to say, I was not at my house. I was out with the kids. So I left a bucket that said, please take two. Santa is watching because I do not have a ring doorbell camera. So I couldn't say that, but I was hoping to pray on the children. Was there any candy left when you got home? There was candy left. I was so impressed. (laughs) But my kids got loads. Courtney, what was what was the traffic in your neighborhood? It was uh, it was a little slow in on the east side of Cleveland when when trick or treating kicked off. But when when it got dark out, man, there were so many kids. I was out of candy by like seven thirty, maybe. Lisa, how was it in Lynnhurst? Well, in my street, it's mostly older people. There are not a lot of kids on my street, but it was interesting because on the Lindhurst Facebook page, all the people that had the big decorations and the candy said, okay, we're ready on, you know, Sunview Street. We're ready on Croydon Street. So people knew where to go. It was, And they had photos of, you know, their yards and, and the candy bowls. So I know that some areas, mostly west of me, got a lot of action. And we had a light year. It's weird. Every other year, it seems like we run out of candy. And then there's an off year like last night where there was a lot left. I'll be bringing it in for our election night gathering so that people get to clean it out. Okay, that does it for a Tuesday. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday.